0: I had been living in Austin for about two years, and I remember when I first moved here, everyone was complaining about the traffic and the weather. And coming from San Francisco, and I had been commuting to Silicon Valley every day for work, and I was like, people, this is not traffic. And then about two years in, I was talking to a friend, and I caught myself complaining about the traffic and the weather in one sentence. My name's Paige Davis, and this is I Love You So Much. Welcome
1: to I Love You So Much, the Austin 360 podcast, a show for everyone caught up in an ongoing love affair with Austin, even if it's complicated. I'm your host, Tali Mosley.
2: I'm Omar Gayaga,
1: And I'm Addie Broyles, coming to you from the shores of Lady
3: Bird Lake in the offices of the Austin American Statesman.
1: In this week's episode, it's all about human connection and pizza camp at the new Home Slice Pizza. Co-owners Jen Strickland and Terry Hannafin joined us at their just-opened North Loop eatery to talk community, hospitality, and the art of the New York crust.
3: Austin photographer Scott David Gordon has turned his love of art into Austin Art Talk, a podcast featuring interviews with local artists and gallery owners about what inspires them and the ups and downs of the creative life.
1: Food lovers are still mourning the death of Anthony Bourdain, and Addie and I talk about the legacy of his storytelling and what food writers continue to inspire us.
3: We'll end, as always, with our recommendations in a toast. But first, Home Slice owners Jen and Terry sat down for a conversation with us at their bustling second location, which opened last month.
1: We are here in the new Home Slice Pizza with Terry and Jen. Hello, ladies. Hi. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So, I'm here with Addie, and we are at this new location, which immediately upon driving up, it's on North Loop, has this real neighborhood vibe. Um, The building itself, you know, has families walking in and out, little kids here and there. Um, it's the middle of the day in the afternoon, but there's this like very lively energy, and I'm sure it becomes much more lively during peak hours <laughs> it, What I'm saying is it feels very organic um, Perhaps because it feels that it feels that way because there's a lot of intentionality behind this location I uh, made the first question. I want to start with both of you was you know with the success of the original home slice as an iconic Austin food brand, you could have gone the way of Juice Land and opened up a ton of locations and little pocket areas, but instead, this is your. This is a very. This is more of a Franklin's route, where you kept it very much in the family. Um, you cultivated your original location for years, and now we've got the second one. So,
0: why did you decide to do that? Why move slower? There are a bunch of different reasons, but I guess. I'll I'll have to go back to the very beginning, um, when Jen and Joseph and I started this together. We talked about what our goals were, and and our we had a few primary goals. The primary goal was quality of life. Um, human connection was another one of our goals, and you know we just wanted to be challenged every day. We wanted to laugh every day. We wanted to work alongside interesting people. We of course wanted to introduce. Um, authentic New York style pizza to Austin, we wanted to be a neighborhood joint, you know, we wanted to be a place where people could come and uh, be happier when they left them when they came in and and so that's those those have always been at the top of our motivation and so um, growing fast and we're just not ambitious in that way we're more ambitious in the way that we want to know everyone who works for us we want to get to know our customers we want to get to um, listen to our customers. We want to, we want to help take um, an employee and help them exceed their their own thought of their potential. We we those are the things that get us all jazzed up. And so, um, we've never been in a, a giant hurry to grow. Um, but really, we've because we those are our ideals and those are our goals. We've developed a really amazing staff of people. We have over 30 managers right now and um, some of the ones that have been with us from the very beginning they're young and they are a little bit more ambitious and they they're excited to grow and you know there's only so many responsibilities in one pizzeria and so the reason we opened more home slice was in part because we needed more ovens to be able to say yes to more orders but in large part it was because we had staff members who were just knocking it out of the park and and we needed to give them positions and so we wanted to make them managers and, and give them another shop and we want to make them happy. So
4: <laughs> Yeah, we made them partners in this with us. So that was cool. But yeah, exactly what Terry said. We just um we care more about the details and getting them right every time than growing
3: well, there was education that had to happen on the consumer side, but also on the staff side about what is New York pizza? What does it feel like? What does it taste like? How is it different than what options are currently on the market? So how, I mean, was that a difficult process? I mean, obviously going to New York to try all the pizzas and then bringing it back here has got to be fun. But
0: you know, do consumers you ever push that. back? Um, about a
3: pushback oh, about uh, like what is what they expected about pizza? Like if oh yeah, you, if like yeah. people grew up on Pizza Hut and they
4: come here and they're like, this
3: isn't what I thought it was. Or
4: just what is it yeah. really more and why is it special? I think and we we definitely all of our early branding and even the business plan because when we were trying to get investors, there was a whole page on what is New York style pizza. I think it was just really fun. I think also. People have heard New York-style pizza, and there's been, over the years, many Austin pizzerias that um, claim that as their uh, descriptor. <laughs> I'm not sure I agree with them, but um, uh, I think people had heard it, and it's it was also such a term that inspired debate because people would say you can't make York style pizza without the water or you know the people that knew it you know it's
1: okay once and for all is is that a wife's tale about like new, like new jersey bagels it's and new york to city say, pizza because
0: we have very similar water um, yeah <laughs> it's hard water and wow. so it's hard to say who knows but i think i think i would love the challenge yeah <laughs> so
1: well
4: i'm sure you get compliments from new yorkers all the time,
0: all new yorkers. The time. yeah we thank do thank goodness mm-hmm. thank
1: goodness yeah and
4: that's really what makes us super thrilled so
1: So something that's always surprised me about the success of Home Slice is the same thing that surprises me about Franklin's. The fact that this is like a set genre of food that people are all about already and like how excited can you really get about variation quality? Like banh mi or ramen even, I understand it's a novelty food. People are taking advantage of a hole in the market. But like pizza is all around us. There are tons of options. So yeah, it must have been hard to break
0: out. I'll well, tell you what oh go ahead go ahead i was just gonna first. say
4: there weren't tons of options in 2005. There were like four pizzerias and um, we definitely I feel like have uh, inspired a whole explosion of pizzerias of different genres after us. but that's what the kooky thing about it is is there we really didn't have that much competition for our style.
0: Yeah, we d- we definitely have it. De- there were so many pizzerias that opened at a similar time to us. I f- I feel like East Side Pies did, and they're still knocking it out of the park. And they're a totally different style than we are. I, th- I I feel like I don't know. We all saw the same niche that that was needed, you know, um, in Austin. I I love that Jen Jen from the second she moved here, she's like, oh, we need to get this pizza to this town. They're going to freak out, and that's been my biggest surprise is how many people freak out about this very simple product. You guys are dedicated to consistency because this restaurant
3: smells exactly like the one on South Congress. (laughs) And this is what, my sister lives in Boise, Idaho. She does not eat a lot of gluten. She eats your gluten. Every time
4: she comes, she's like, can we go to Hump Slice? And I tell her, absolutely. That's That's wonderful to hear. That's funny to me because since we serve buffalo wings at this location, I a lot of times smell the fryer, which is a total foreign smell for from 12 years, you know. <laughs> what are some of the other differences between the two locations? And we have a full bar and signature cocktails and buffalo wings, and you can get Sicilian um, pizza here every day that we're open. Um, down on South Congress, it's only Mondays and Thursdays, and that's because the space it takes for all those pizzas to rise is, ju- is just overwhelming. And, and on the busier um, days, we can't fit all the dough boxes and manage them in the ovens because due
1: to their size... So on the quality of life front, I was extremely touched by your answer early ter- earlier, Terry, about what your goals were with a business, which clearly isn't to like rake in millions, but just to have a good life. Like to me, that just reflects absolutely the entrepreneurial ethos of Austin. On that camp, or on that note, <laughs> Addie and I have always been really curious about this pizza camp that you take <laughs> your employees on every year to New York it's this like week-long extended tutorial in the art of New York pizza making so tell us a little bit about
0: that well I think you also said something earlier was or I I might have heard you say is that hard or whatever and my first thought was no it's a blast but then I remember the first um, couple of years it was really hard Jen and I would go ahead of time To go try out all the different places we wanted to take our staff so the the goal of the trip is to introduce our team many of whom grew up in Texas um, who have never either never been to New York or didn't really understand our inspiration um, authentic New York style pizza and so that was the goal is to bring them there turn them on to that and um, the added goal is to bond with them get to you know get to experience Italian culture in New York because it's very different um, there and also to get to experience hospitality together um, at different restaurants and so um, we would go to different Italian restaurants to see would they be able to take a party of 30 and, and do it well. Um, do we think the food is the quality that we want? Try a bunch of different pizzerias that we had never tried that weren't there when we lived there and it was really hard. We would go to I don't know, 15 different places a day to try out. And so many, we would come back and people would say, oh, I want your job. And we'd say, no, it's <laughs> so hard because it's exhausting. it's exhausting. And, and you know, you by the end of the day, you don't want to put another bite of food in your mouth, but it was all worth it because um, we found some real gems and we had some really fantastic experiences with our staff, just one-of-a-kind experiences where the the grandma, the Italian grandma of the bakery would come out and sing an aria for our staff and send out everybody free cheesecake and, um, I mean, just super special experiences because of all of these extra trips that we would, our, our research trips.
4: Being there and celebrating those little businesses was like so... Uh, touching to them a lot of times that's why we would have people treat us that way and you know um they just thought we were a bunch of crazy people from texas like caring about all this stuff because it's just what the what they do and what they've always done but it was really really nice and to see um just the the remnants, I mean it's still going strong in a lot of places, but of just the Italian immigrant experience in New York, you know, there really aren't isn't a group of Italian people in Austin, Texas. There's not an an immigrant population like we have for Mexican food or you know, even some of the Asian food now. So that was really important to to turn them on to that and to see it because there's such a big um, part of hospitality to Italian culture and, you know, bravado and, um, you know, just uh, theater. So
3: That is an amazing investment into not just your employees but just us in culture in general that you're taking people from Texas who maybe, you know... I don't want to stereotype, but like if you went to Luby's and Dairy Queen and just sort of like your everyday Texas restaurants, you might not have ever experienced this level of what you're talking about, that level of hospitality. And to go and introduce that to somebody, change, oh, not cha- you could change their life. I mean, especially if you're going to have a whole career in hospitality, having sort of a singular experience like that, to come back here and then know that that's what you're aiming for. Yeah. You know, you're not aiming for just like hey honey how are you let me make sure you got your drink like you want to go above and beyond
4: yeah and every year we've um, done the same things but we've done different things like um, it, and it's not it wasn't ever easy from the very beginning to do just Italian places because, like I said, some of that stuff, like even in the you know 12 years we've been going, we've seen like a, a resurgence in a lot of the kind of Italian businesses, like um, children carrying on with their parents. Businesses are opening up ones after their parents had them. and So that's been really cool. Um, but we've also cele- always celebrated just the specialness about New York which a lot of that bravado and hospitality doesn't just come from Italian people and um you just have to New York has a bad rap but really you just have to look for it or not even look for it it just happens you know and so that was a really cool thing too is is to just see how people are especially just around food culture and when when our staff is asking questions we some of the different things that we did over the years one of one of the times we um had a scavenger hunt and we sent uh teams to maybe six um historically and sometimes currently italian immigrant neighborhoods and then there were like three or four places for them to visit on the list and they had to like go to the places and um talk to the people, eat the food, report back. And and uh, this just was one of my most favorite moments is we had a dinner at um, a pretty well-known uh, Italian restaurant in Brooklyn. And we had this private room, which nobody in New York has a private room. This is like why it was one of a kind. But everybody had to do a report on their area that they went to and what they did and talking about it and um, it was fabulous and everyone just loved it and I mean people cried but what was really amazing was the staff of this Italian restaurant that we were at and it was a hipster, it was a young person, um, it, was, it was Frankie Spuntino right um, they, the staff like all came up to us afterwards and they were just like oh my god, I can't who feels this way about the restaurant they work at like who, how how did you guys do this this is so amazing, I I was taking notes I'm going to go to all those places that you guys talked about and that just made me feel so good because like, I don't know, people are just hungry for authenticity and just like Terry said, human connection it's really the only reason to be alive and so we're just trying to do what we can to foster that
1: I think that's actually a beautiful note to end on. <laughs> uh, so with that bit of spiritualism, <laughs> thank you so much, Jen and Terry, sure. for talking to us on I Love You So Much and congratulations on the opening of your new restaurant. Thank you very much. Austin artists have it easy, or do they? Austin Art Talk is a new podcast exploring what it takes to be an artist here, and Addy spoke with host Scott David Gordon about his own inspiration for starting the show.
5: Thanks
3: for coming to the studio.
5: Thanks for having me, Addy.
3: So you started Austin Art Talk last year. What what compelled you to start interviewing Austin, Austin's artists?
5: Um... Well, I've been listening to podcasts for years, and I love them, and they've added a lot of value to my life. So, I wanted to start my own. And uh, a couple years ago, I had an idea for a podcast where every season I would uh, explore a different theme, something I wanted to learn about. You know, the first season was going to be about women's issues, so it was going to be, you know, interviewing women. What can I? do to make the world a better place for women what am I doing right what am I doing wrong just trying to understand those issues and then ended up not doing that and just realized at one point that the path of least resistance for me would be to interview artists because I'm an artist myself and I'm in, in the artist community and I know tons of artists and it just seemed like it would be fun to learn more about them
3: yeah, so when we first met, you were a photographer. You still are a photographer uh, with Johnson's Backyard Garden. So you shoot beautiful photos of vegetables and farming yeah. every week. How long have you been doing that job?
5: It'll be eight years in September.
3: And how do you keep it fresh and interesting?
5: That's Shooting challenging. season after season of
3: <laughs> carrots and broccoli and tomatoes. And-
5: it's, yeah, it's definitely... The longest term photo project I've ever done, if you think about it that way, Mm -hmm. shooting the same thing every week for eight years. And uh, yeah, I I just try to go, I go one morning a week, and I just try to look at things from a different perspective, try to figure out um, different angles, high, low, close, far. Yeah, it's a challenge, but uh, it's exciting, and it's, it's a very, uh, I think, a healthy thing to be out at the farm every week. I think I take that for granted.
3: So what have you come to appreciate about farming, having spent so much time out there?
5: I've come to appreciate the complexity of it and how much experience and thought and planning goes into it. And uh, it is a really hard job, and I think that's why a lot of people don't go into it. Um, there's so many layers, there's timing throughout the whole year, there's different techniques, different types of equipment, different types of things to plant in different areas, and then you're dealing with the weather. So I guess I really appreciate the persistence of farmers and the fact that they do want to make the world a better place and grow healthy food for people. Um, And I realize, yeah, what a tough job it is, and I really respect that.
3: Seems like a lot of the same things could be said about the artists in this community and just the different ways that there are to go about it and how hard it is to get off the ground. I mean, what have you learned interviewing some 40 artists? How many many episodes are you in? on the podcast 29 29. okay so you've interviewed 29 not just visual artists but you've you know you interviewed an art therapist who worked at Dell Children's for instance it's a really great show by the way Um, you get lots of really deep insights deep conversations it's all they're all hour long chats with just a diverse group of people who have lots of different experiences you know younger older um, some gallery owners but yeah what have you kind of taken away about what it means to be an artist in Austin by talking with all of these people
5: there's some themes for sure. One of them is that uh, you just have to do the work. I think that's a big theme. I've heard a lot of artists talk about that. Um, you can have a lot of excuses. Why not to do something? Why not to try something? Have fear? I mean, that's something I explore with a lot of artists. I share my own fears <laughs> and hesitation. But I think the ones that are really successful just do the work, and they do something every day, and they're persistent about that. And um, they also tend to have multiple projects going at the same time, or multiple types of things, and then if they get stuck on one, they move around to a different one. Uh, that seems to be a theme. Um, I think a lot of them also couldn't imagine doing anything else. Like, doing art really feeds their souls, and it's really important to them. And I think that some people that don't give in to that, if, you, if I could say... Um, do suffer so Mm -hmm. I think that it's very speaking of art therapy I Mm -hmm. think it's hugely therapeutic to do art and I think if you're driven to do that um I think there's probably a way you can figure out to add something to your life every day.
3: It does, I mean, listening to these conversations, they do kind of feel like therapy in a way, both for you and the artists. What have you taken away from this process of, I mean, y- you know, you've been a photographer for a long time, you've done some bitty, pretty big projects, but yeah. how has this podcast reinvigorated your own practice?
5: Oh, it's been huge. Yeah. <laughs> of course, I mean, i I get feedback from people about how inspired they are hearing these conversations. And so, of course, it inspires me because by the, by the time I finish an episode and even afterwards, I've probably heard it like four or five times. Mm-hmm. So it's really sinking into my brain. And I think that um, it's made me think about the kind of art that I want to create differently. Like I've always been very into two-dimensional artwork and painting and drawing and illustration. And now I find myself drawn and open to sculptural work. And so I'm thinking of creating sculptural work. And I'm also thinking of incorporating performance. And and these are all new things that I'd never thought that I would do necessarily. And I just, I feel like I want to go in a completely different direction with my own work.
3: Mm -hmm. What have you heard from the artists you've interviewed about art in Austin today, you know, we were talking about the starving artist myth or truth. And it sounds like some of the people you've interviewed have said it is not a myth. It is very hard to make a living as an artist, (laughs) especially in Austin with rising rents. I mean, are you hearing kind of that same lament from most people you talk to? Or are you hearing also some stories of hope and positivity that it's a great place to be making art right now?
5: I think there's a lot of positivity because it is a great community and there are so many diverse types of artists here and they're all... Uh, following their passions in their spare time or full time. You know, I make a point to go out to a lot of art openings and art events and try to support artists that I've interviewed and that I like their work. And um, it's a smaller community within the scope of Austin, and I think there's probably a big swath of Austin that has no connection to it at all. Unfortunately, I feel like I'd love to figure out a way to get those people interested too. I think it's a very positive community. I think everyone is fed by what everyone else is doing and inspired by their work that that they see that's being created. And I think there are some struggles when it comes around space um, and losing spaces, uh, art artist studio spaces. So
3: not just gal- not gallery space necessarily, but just studio space for production.
5: Well, yeah, both. I guess okay. yeah, affordable studio space uh, and also enough galleries to show all the work that's mm-hmm. available, mm-hmm. all the wonderful work that's Are there that's enough art
3: patrons here buying the art to keep artists afloat?
5: I think there could be.
3: Yeah. You think, <laughs> think people th- are reluctant to invest in art?
5: Yeah, unfortunately, I feel like um, you know, you have the West Austin Studio Tour, you have the East Austin Studio Tour. A lot of people see that as a chance to go and look at work and see people's studios, which is so much fun. But um, I also think I'm also so impressed and moved by people that actually even maybe put aside money to buy art. They have an art budget or something because they're valuing the art. They're valuing what the artist is creating. They want to support the artist. And that's very moving to me. So I feel like there are a lot of people in Austin that probably could afford original art and maybe they don't maybe they feel intimidated by that. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like there has to be a way to have some kind of outreach to those kind of people to maybe help educate them about collecting art so they're not intimidated by it. And even just kind of the simple idea that you know you just go with what appeals to you, what you like. I mean, you don't necessarily have to have a, a degree in art history or know everything about the artists. Like, it's just about like if it moves you and it makes you feel something and and you could imagine wanting to look at it every day, then that's enough. Hmm.
3: Yeah, I've loved listening to your conversations with artists to then hear what it's like on their end, like when they're hosting a show, when you have people come in. And, you know, some artists are really aware that there's maybe going to be a commercial transaction that comes out of that relationship. Okay, so Elizabeth Child's interview was really interesting because I got to hear her explain why she loves hearing from the potential customers about what they're drawn to about the pieces and how she she just, it's almost like she doesn't just want to take their money. You know, she wants to have an intellectual exchange with them about what her art, not necessarily so they can agree about what the art means, but she's so curious about how the art uh, lands wherever they are, you know, with all of their experiences mm-hmm. that has, have led them to this place. I want to ask you about some of your other favorite people that you have interviewed on the show so far. If So if listeners wanted to go and just kind of get some of the highlights of Austin Art Talk.
5: Yeah, sure. But I'll say one more thing about Elizabeth, though. I love doing interviews and being given an idea that I never thought of before or, or you know, help to think about something differently. And that's... an. A perfect example because um, she's compartmentalizing the process of kind of like this transaction with the art buyer or someone that's following her work and it's like to her, yeah, the part of interacting with the person, having them come into the studio, talking about the work, that is a fulfilling thing within itself, even more so maybe than having a sale. And I never really thought about that before. And I think about I was trying to apply that thought to how it feels to go into you know a big art fair and go into an artist booth and have that person enthusiastically engage me and I guess my limited thinking before was that they wanted to sell me something but maybe all they ever wanted to do was connect with me you know mm. it just made me think differently about mm. that um, but to answer your question um, some of my favorite episodes, I don't want to like, you know, <laughs> leave well, anyone out.
3: <laughs> the ba- Bale, Bale uh, Creek Show.
5: The Bale Creek Allen yeah. uh, was, was probably so- one of my most uh, popular episodes so far. And he's just a really interesting, dynamic artist uh, who does a real diversity of types of work. And he, you know, when it comes to having a great work ethic, he has one of the best I think. But
3: he's also kind of a good old boy from Austin, you know what I mean, from like the good old days of Austin in a way, yeah. who he's kind of maintaining this spirit of like, let's all love each other and let's all share and let's all, you know, just be scrappy and grassroots. And, yeah. you know, he's exactly. kind of idealistic. He kind of has these yeah. like hippie ideals that I also yeah. really liked. And then you had Deborah Roberts on, who is now a nationally known artist out of Austin. She has some pieces in the Blanton I saw somewhat recently that. Yeah were really powerful. And like that was that was a really poignant conversation. But I just like them. You know, some of them are funny. Some of them are more serious and somber. Some of them are are really enlightening that, like I said, that art therapy talk um, really spoke to the cathartic process of creation. No matter. It doesn't matter your talents or your skills. Even if you don't identify as an artist, there's still art within you that you really owe it to yourself to
5: explore. So anyway,
3: that's been my takeaway from your podcast.
5: Yeah, we all have creativity and ways that we're creative in our lives. And uh, yeah, it's just it's fun to talk to each person and kind of figure out what makes them tick and what motivated them and what's their history and how did they get where they are and why do they make their work? What drives them?
3: So if people wanted to find more episodes or just stay up with what you're up to, where can they find them?
5: Uh, At AustinArtTalk.com or... Pretty much on every podcast app that's available, you can subscribe to Austin Art Talk. And I
3: love plugging the Instagram because I think that... Yeah. So it's Austin Art Talk as well there, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, You can find out pretty much like the latest happenings at galleries just by following Scott on Instagram. (laughs) So (laughs) thanks so much for coming in today. Oh,
5: thank you. I really enjoyed it.
3: people remember Anthony Bourdain as a food writer, but at the center of his stories were always people. The South by Southwest veteran left an impression on foodies and writers alike, and in this segment, we
1: reflect on his work. Listeners, before we dive into this segment, we want to say um, something very frank about the taking of someone's life, and that is suicide. If this is a topic that is personal to you, we advise you to please please reach out to your nearest Suicide Hotline or network of friends and family. Addie Broyles. Okay. Um, You, like me, were shocked to hear the news of Anthony Bourdain. And now that it's settled a little bit, I know I have personally been thinking about his legacy. Um, Over the weekend, I listened to Fresh Air's 2016 interview with him. He had just come out with a cookbook for home cooking, Mm. cooking for the family. Um, I have a lot of personal memories about Anthony Bourdain, but what was your just immediate reaction? Oh,
3: it was devastating. I think anybody who had watched him or written about him knew that he struggled. And that had been part of his story from the beginning. You know, uh, Kitchen Confidential came out in 2000, uh, the year after, a 1999 piece that ran in The New Yorker that, in some ways glorified this bad boy rock star chef image of you know you're not a true chef unless you struggled with addiction
1: Yeah,
3: and that when you come out of the gate with that it's, it's going to follow you and he never you know I don't know whether or not he got sober I don't know whether or not he was in a program of some sort but it did seem like there was a dark long tail of that addiction that maybe followed him and that you know mental health is a very serious issue that all of us struggle with and but we all deal with it in different ways and it's hard to you know i think the, the my first reaction was you know he had everything he you know how 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 could you do this sort of that mm-hmm. kind of thing um, but then I, I pretty much immediately went into work mode thinking, what did he mean to us as a food industry? Um, but I was also taking calls from friends who were crying and were really yeah. upset um, wow. just because everybody felt this personal connection to him. And that's what I think at the end of that day I left was a, just a huge appreciation for what he contributed to the food world and how he really changed changed the landscape of how we talk about not just chefs. And that's what I think, uh, you know, I want to get beyond as we as we talk and, and memorialize him is that, you know, he didn't just um, he didn't just create this sort of like bad boy chef underbelly of the, the restaurant world. Yeah, he, he his his impact was much greater, which I think um, you we both saw as his television Sh- show
1: evolved. Sure. Yeah. And sometimes I wonder whether that like bad boy chef thing was accidental because he entered the restaurant business the way some kids do the ROTC or the military like it wasn't about a love of fine dining yet it was about structure and respect that at that time as a rebellious teenager he desperately needed um but I was struck by something he said on Fresh Air and it's this gets to the like what is that rough exterior really hiding mm-hmm. and he talks about you know there's two ways to approach food. One is a critical experience and one is an emotional experience. Mm -hmm. And he's happiest doing it on an emotional level. And when you see him like as a chef or like a guest judge on Top Chef or something, obviously like he's like calling on his like chef chops and he's talking about it at a critical level. But... On No Reservations, food is really not the central part of that show at all. It is simply a conversation starter to get people talking about their lives and about their culture.
0: So beautiful.
3: And then Parts Unknown, uh, that was his later show with CNN – all of those shows were were the food was simply an excuse to get invited into somebody's house. Exactly. And to have a conversation with them about how they live their lives. And that was Bourdain's true gift to all of us is to, you know, I'll never forget whenever he first started speaking more openly in defense of immigrants mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. specifically the Latinos. in I mean, in New York City, who if there were no Latinos working in kitchens in New York City, there would not be. A restaurant industry in New York. Yeah. And and I think he took that as a calling somewhat early on. And once he once he became famous, um, by the time he was writing Medium Raw, which came out in 2005, he wrote an entire chapter about a cook at Le Bernardin, which is Eric Repair's restaurant. Um, he had worked in the restaurant for like 20 years, and he had never actually eaten in the restaurant. Wow. And so he took him for dinner. To eat at his own restaurant. And that, to me, was the turning point for Bourdain when he he, he ceased being really a chef. I actually stopped calling him a chef and, and, yeah. and started calling him just, uh, you know, as you called him, a storyteller, producer. Um, I mean, and with his cinematic team, they were making these really epic Oscar. I mean, they won Emmys, but I mean, just epic, epic um television show. It Mm -hmm. was unlike anything you would see on TV. Mm -hmm. Um, But he really became a social justice advocate. And I think that especially those of us who are working in the food industry now, you cannot keep that any, I mean, you have to keep that forefront of mind anytime you're writing. Either, you know, I write about home cooking, so I'm thinking a lot about agriculture. I'm thinking a lot about who has access to grocery stores, who has access to the time to cook and to learn how to cook. If you're writing about restaurants, really thinking critically about who's doing the cooking and how right. and how the whole industry is built upon absolutely wages that are you know below minimum wage. Exactly, exactly, and, and what that ends up looking like for the families who right. who you know who are sending off their a beloved family member to go work in a restaurant for you know 12 hours a day and so you know that was never far from Bourdain's mind right, right, right. and I think that that's um that's really how we honor him is is by continuing to keep that focus and to continue I mean creating con- for me as a food writer creating content around sh- t- showing these stories telling these mm-hmm. stories um amplifying voices of people who
1: don't already have the spotlight the people behind the food yeah, yeah beautifully said so um, let's get into the writing part because, listeners, um, I know some of you are writers. Both Addie and I are too. And I have a really distinct memory of reading Kitchen Confidential 10 years ago in just a spate of food memoirs and trying to figure out, like, how do how does someone take a subject as, like, what I think of as, like, kind of boring as food and, like, spin it into these, like, amazing tales? So I just wanted to read the first few lines of um Anthony Bourdain's breakout essay in The New Yorker. This is from 1999. It's titled Don't Eat Before Reading This. Good food, good eating is all about blood and organs, cruelty and decay. It's about sodium loaded pork fat, stinky triple cream cheeses, the tender thymus glands and distended livers of young animals. It's about danger, risking the dark bacterial forces of beef, chicken, cheese and shellfish. Your first 207 well-fleet oysters may transport you to a state of rapture, but your 208th may send you to bed with the sweats, chills, and vomits. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so so I want to say two things. First of all, like, a tiny bit of purple probes there, but, like, <laughs> uh, and Anthony Warden, in some of his interviews, has talked about being really influenced by um, down and out in Paris and London. George Orwell's kind of journeyman's look at life in the margins. And um, he, you know, this is when he was still a working uh, chef of no particular distinction. Mm -hmm. So he wrote when he had time, like Mm -hmm. an hour in the morning off to work, you know, maybe a little bit before bed. And it really brought up the question for me, like, as a writer, it's always this chicken or the egg thing. Like, what's more important? Like the Elizabeth Gilbert showing up and working on your craft every single day, or, gathering up rich life experiences and I think with the thing that Anthony Bourdain kind of taught me as a writer is like yes you have a discipline and also the magic is in the specificity Mm. so you don't go you don't have to go have this wild life in order to be a successful writer Mm -hmm. but the specificity of your experience is what grabs people Mm. Um, Yeah, I,
3: I also am struck though hearing that about how as writers we also get to choose to focus on the the problems or the issues or we get to focus on the solutions and the strength mm-hmm. and I can hear a lot of darkness in that yeah. I can hear a lot of addiction in that mm. I can hear a lot of somebody who is struggling to really confront the dangers and the demons of their life mm. and who almost takes pride in having that edge and having mm. that you know Maybe this oyster is going to be the one, you know, that ma- that makes me sick rather than the oyster that, that brings me joy. And I think that all of us have a responsibility to really think about in our lives and our work. If we if we make things or even if we're just living our lives, you know, do we look at our demons and cling to them or do we acknowledge them and and growl back right. and find a way to look for the light and to look for you know I, I he, we glamorize him so often for this bad boy image which I guess we oh, just know really, well, I no we think just needed I don't know if we needed that at that time in American society or what because I, I think well po- po-
1: possibly because like fine dining like seemed very elitist yeah. you know but I mean, with Anthony Bourdain I always think it's that razor's edge between sensitivity and self-destruction mm-hmm. so but let's let's You know, we, Addie and I are not psychologists, so like what we (laughs) did want to talk to you guys about was other food writers who use food as the catalyst to talk about something else. Mm -hmm. So um, I'll go first in my little, like, um, when I was trying to break out of 9 to 5 Life and become a freelance writer, some of the most um, inspirational food memoirs to me were as follows. Frank Bruni's Born Rounds. Frank Bruni was actually um, a politics writer at New York Times who had a long, very painful struggle with eating disorders. Mm-hmm. And uh, after he finally conquered it, he was asked to be the New York Times food critic. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> That's a great book. <laughs> it's so good. It's, yeah. it's 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 sad, it's painful, but it's really funny. It's extremely funny. It's really smart. Um, I read tons of Ruth Reichel at the time and a sense of kind of, um, gone away from Ruth Reichel. Like, she of the beautiful prose, but it tended to be like, you know, just about the sensual food mm-hmm. experience. Um, you know, whereas I became more attracted to like food as a gateway to other things. Mm-hmm. Um, but the last one that I loved, loved and just changed my life is someone that you know, Addie. And that's Kim Severson, who wrote Spoonfed, How Eight Cooks Changed My Life.
3: Oh, that was such a great book. I had actually kind of forgotten that book until we were talking about it. But yeah, she goes and writes these uh, individual essays about eight cooks. Rachel Ray is one. Edna Lewis is another. Um, and and just writes about how they helped her I mean, I I, I hate to. Those cooks really helped Kim work through something in her life that Mm -hmm. was deep, dark, despairing and challenging. And she was able to sort of come out on the other side of it with a totally different perspective, not just on food, but on how she functions in the world. Right. And food, again, was just a catalyst to tell these much deeper stories about, you know, overcoming certain demons and, and just finding the light again Mm -hmm. and you know she continues to write for the New York Times to this day and all of her pieces have an element of that so I can't recommend her writing enough I wanted to share my love of M.F.K. Fisher who is sort of the OG food writer (laughs) and by OG I mean like World War II style I don't even know I don't even know if she's on camera I'm sure there's maybe maybe there are some YouTube clips of her I have never seen any images of her actually talking (laughs) media so she wrote um, a slew of books my favorite is called How to Cook a Wolf but there's a compilation of all these essays called The Art of Eating. And MFK Fisher was the first person, at least in my understanding, to one, bring pose and poetry to food and food writing, but also to really get to the depths of what food means to us. And so How to Cook a Wolf is about how to survive on rations during wartime Wow. and what that does to your psyche and how you overcome eating gruel for three or four months right, straight. right? And and she writes with, you know, writes with teeth. I mean, she is just as edgy as Bourdain ever was. Um, but I think she, she just wrote in a time and a place that, I don't know, you just didn't expect... You didn't expect women to be writing books like that. And she, many food writers today consider her sort of the grandmother of food writing. Um, and I can't recommend her prose enough. She's she's a fantastic writer. Um, you mentioned Molly um, Weisenberg. I, I was, yeah. Molly Oranjet is what I call her. <laughs> what was the name of her? Homemade Life. Yeah. That <laughs> she also used food as a portal to tell. God,
1: yeah. And I loved her blog, Oranjet, which I think is still in operation. But Oranjet started... You know, back when blogs were very nascent. And when you found one, it was like finding this random soul Mm -hmm. calling to you from the other side of the valley. You're Mm -hmm. like, oh, my God, I found you. Mm -hmm. And um, I just found like Molly's dispatches from, I guess, Seattle life, Mm -hmm. you know, like finding her husband and, um, you know, having a child together, opening a restaurant. like. You know, she's had this very successful life, but she writes about it in such a tender way and such a human sized way. And Homemade Life is exactly that. Like, yes, she's talking about food. Yes, the memoir is sprinkled with recipes. But she talks about her father's passing during that time, mm-hmm. um, trying to make her way, like trying to find a career at that time that worked for her. So, yeah, Homemade Life is another one of my favorites. It's a very – my friend Brianna put it best, and she said, I feel very calm when I read Molly's work, yeah. <laughs> and I agree with that.
3: I love that. Well, listeners, we would love to hear what other food writers have inspired you, what other food books, food pros, food films, food movies, um, or, you know – Food TV. Food TV. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Chef's Table. I have watched a little bit of. Oh, but, so pretty. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Chef's Table. Yeah. But
3: we would love to hear from you about what you're enjoying right now, um, maybe even some of your favorite episodes of No Reservations – or parts unknown we'd love to hear from you We're love. Uh, you can email us at loveaustin360 at statesman.com
1: or find us on Facebook and Twitter and now we've come to the moment in our show where we have a toast this is where we go around the table with some suggestions of things we think you our listeners should check out so Addie, how about you get us started so if you have not been to the grocery part of Ikea in Round Rock,
3: I think you should go. So most of us go and we get some, you know, meatballs up there and we're all excited and eat the meatballs. And you go home and then, you know, you don't eat meatballs again until you go to Ikea again. <laughs> Swedish meatballs, I should say. But I have actually made trips specifically to Ikea just to stock up on, On I, I say Swedish food, but it's like, there's just all kinds of delicious. There's like rye bread crackers. There's this like salmon pate in a tube that you can like squeeze on crackers. Full
2: disclosure, you're Swedish, right? I was
3: I am about to say, <laughs> <laughs> the food of your people. Sounds
2: great if you're a Swede. <laughs>
3: I have a, like elderflower liqueur, or like if you want to have an elderflower cocktail, you can actually go to Ikea and get lingonberry and elderflower um, simple syrup. And so it makes it really refreshing. You can add that to lemonade, you can add it to a cocktail. Um, they have these little heart-shaped waffles that are just the cutest things you've ever seen, and these cookies and all these gummies. And, you know, if you're making a picnic, I I I don't know. I just really like the type of fare that you can get there because it's packs easy. You can travel with it. If you want to make Swedish meatballs and gravy, you absolutely can. Let that be the thing that gets you there. And then you'll go home with all these other things. Um, And while you're up there, check out Andy's Frozen Custard. This is a beloved um, frozen custard place out of Springfield, Missouri, which is near where I'm from. They have two locations in Austin, one in Round Rock, one in Pflugerville. It's the best frozen custard you've ever had.
2: It's near the Ikea?
3: It's, I mean, it's in Round Rock. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, for me in South Austin, I, I if I go into Williamson County, I'm going to go to... Andy's. No Might matter I knock all the
2: Round Rock stuff in one day, yeah.
1: <laughs> yes, uh, you go to an express game while you're there. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I have definitely hit all of these things in one trip. So, uh, Omar,
2: what do you got? Oh, okay. Well, um, this is something I had not thought to look into until I saw it in the like a community impact newspaper in, in their listings. I
1: love community impact. We
2: just started getting it in New Braunfels, and I'm like, it's so All oh, the stuff good. is opening around me that I had no idea. There's <laughs> we have a boba tea place. What? Uh, so.
1: Yeah, the the new enclosing section is golden
2: we have two boba tea places in new Braunfels now we're big time anyway that's not what I'm here to talk about uh kayak lessons I looked was looking in community impact and they, they had a kayaking 101 uh listed through parks and recreation and I signed my daughter up for it my nine my 10 uh, year old daughter almost 11 year old the cutoff is nine so my younger daughter couldn't do it but we went and it was all of $7. And she got to ride on a kayak and they gave her a very basic lesson, which was basically like, here's an oar, you paddle, get on the boat. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> here's how like, not to
3: tip the boat yeah, over. Yeah, I thought it
2: was going to be like this extensive, like a video lesson and they were going to like do, go over safety. Like, no, here, here's an oar, get on the water. <laughs> how
1: long was the lesson?
2: Uh, it was about an hour and a half. It was really hot and sunny. So she only lasted about an hour out there. But she knows how to kayak now for
1: $7. I love that you're always exposing your kids to cool new activities. Like a couple summers ago, it was Ariel Silk's lessons. Mm-hmm. So now she's been kayaking, kayaking all spring. Climbing. Yeah. yeah.
2: But for that, it was like, I don't want her to be afraid to be on the water on a yeah. kayak. Like, And I can't even get them on tubes. Mm. On the San Marcos yeah. River, like I can't even get them tubing hmm. with me, but she'll get on a kayak and paddle nice. if, it's, if it's a class. It's,
3: <laughs> it's these baby criceps. steps, you know. And and yeah. both of our kids are at this age where you, I feel this pressure to like want I want to be seeding them with things, you know, life lessons and oh, life yeah. skills that they can use. And they're curious enough, but they have trepidation. So a class is a great way to. Yeah.
2: And my thing was like I don't car. care if she ever kayaks again. I just want her to know that she can kayak, like oh. if she needs to or if she That's wants awesome. to. Um. But she. Was, but as soon as she was done, she's like, I want to go do that again. And my other daughter was like, I do too. So like <gasps> we're gonna go kayaking. But oh. But So the toast part of this is like, look into your local parks and rec. You may not have to pay, go to a commercial, uh, kayaking place or whatever. You might, there might be some stuff offered, you know, cheap or free through your community parks and rec program. So look into that. It's a
1: great recommendation.
2: This is in New Braunfels. I don't know about you Austinites. You're on your own, but look <laughs> Shoot, into
1: it. I made toast to my community impact because I get the Central Austin edition, and it is juicy. It's so. packed puts
2: good and good stuff. Yes,
1: it is. Okay, so my oh. real toast is um, I just binged Evil Genius on Netflix. This is yet another home run for the Duplass brothers, who also produced uh, Wild Wild Country. And Evil Genius is about this really interesting bank robbery that happened in the early aughts where a man walked into a bank in uh, Erie, Pennsylvania with a bomb strapped to his neck. And uh, he walked outside after robbing the bank. Police were called. And um, I won't tell you what happens, <laughs> but um, it's a high high stakes, <laughs> high stakes situation. Wow. And um, everyone wanted to know who was the mastermind who created this. And it's not giving anything away to tell you that it's um this one woman who is uh both extremely intelligent and also severely mentally ill mm-hmm. and um but she's this incredible manipulator like she's this incredible incredible manipulator specifically with men and it so sounds a lot like wild wild country
2: yeah i was gonna say is that the same lady from wild <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> no my beloved sheila it is not sheila um no this woman is really interesting like she has this crazy story she's kind of this like fallen beauty of her community too Hmm. um but she still maintains like her manipulation and um but she has this wake of boyfriends and husbands in her past who are now dead and Mm. so that (laughs) might tell you something this is like a 90 minute documentary on netflix (laughs) well it's a i want to say it's a It's either a four-part or five-part series. And so it kind of just details, you're trying to figure out, but there are other characters that enter the picture, and it's like, wait a minute, maybe it isn't Marjorie. Maybe it's someone else who, like, was the mastermind behind this whole thing. So it's a little bit of police procedural, um, but you're also just kind of getting to know, like, I don't know, like, the... Circumstances under which someone would devise this crazy plan. It wasn't just a bank robbery. It was like a nutty scavenger hunt where this guy was supposed Mm to rob the bank and then um, follow this like you know fifty pages of instructions handwritten to go find the key to get the bomb off of his neck. (laughs) I mean, it was sounds like the work of an evil genius. Wild. (laughs) It's so wild. So anyway, evil genius. Um, Netflix. Check it out.
3: It's a great recommendation. Thanks, Tolly. Thanks, guys.
1: That's our show, she's Addie, he's Omar, I'm Tolly. Check out the Austin 360 Instagram and Facebook for more about life in Austin. And talk to us on Twitter at loveaustin360. If you liked what you heard today, leave us a review on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. It helps other people discover the show. I love you so much. The Austin 360 podcast is
3: produced by Alyssa Vidales. The show is made with support from Features Editor Sharon Chapman and the entire Austin 360 staff. Our theme music is from local band Hardproof, which you should definitely check out at hardproofmusic.com.
2: You can find more about the show and its contributors at austin360.com slash loveaustin360. And if you want to pitch an idea for the show or give us feedback, shoot us a note at loveaustin360 at statesman.com or leave a voicemail at 512-445-3672.
1: This show is brought to you by our sponsor, Lexus of Austin. We
3: couldn't do the show without you, dear listeners, and we can't thank you enough for lending us your ears, your comments, and your extra beach towels. Until next week, we'll see you standing in line for Deep Eddie.